Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, alcoholic. And by the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the program of recovery I found in this book, I've not found it necessary to take a drink since the 7th of July, 1988. For that, I'm extremely grateful. It is uh, good to be here. I had the over-under in my mind at about 25 people, so we've surpassed that. So that's uh, that's good. I'm glad you could all join us. And I want to, uh, first of all, thank Kathy for all of her support. And I remember Kathy when she first came in. I remember that first workshop. And Alcoholics Anonymous, for those of you who are new, Alcoholics Anonymous is the only place in the world where you, the worse you look, the more they like you. It's the only place, okay? Because I remember when she came in, and I remember when lots of people like her came in, and I remember when I came in and what I looked like. And it was in, and so when I see people that are brand new walking right off the street, I say, these are, these are my people. You know, I, we understand. And if you're new and you're sitting, by the way, how many people are here with less than a year of sobriety? By the way, lots of people with less than a year. Well, welcome. And, uh, hopefully this workshop will be informative. Uh, hopefully you will learn something and hopefully we'll have some fun the next 10 weeks. This is a 10 week series. For those of you who don't know, if you can't make every one, make the ones you can. I will tell you because I've been to a number of these type of workshops that, uh, it is helpful if you go to them all in succession. And the reason I say that is because we're going to be talking about things next week and we're going to be referencing back to things we talk about this week. Okay. This week we're going to lay the foundation. We're going to talk about why they wrote the book. We're going to talk about the history of the book. We're going to talk about the preface of the book, the forewords, the importance of some of the information in there. And from that, then we're going to springboard into the doctor's opinion next week. Does that make sense to everybody? So if you can make it, do yourself a favor. Otherwise, you can come. If you miss one, you'll still get something out of it, hopefully. But you may miss some information and go, what the heck is he talking about? Okay. So, so that's the first thing. I want to ask everybody, I know Kathy opened with the prayer that we usually open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and Serenity Prayer, but I want to say another prayer in a minute here that a sponsor of mine helped me with and gave me that uh, I think is for me what I hope we can accomplish in, uh, in this workshop the next 10 weeks. So would you join me please in a moment of silence? Lord, help me to set aside... Everything I think I know about you. Everything I think I know about myself. Everything I think I know about my fellows. And everything I think I know about my own recovery. All for a new experience in you, Lord. A new experience in myself. A new experience in my fellows. And a much needed new experience in my own recovery. Amen. And I like that prayer. My old sponsor, Bob D., gave me that prayer and... uh and the reason I like that prayer is because oftentimes what I've found in my brief time in recovery is that it's the things that I learned yesterday or the things that I believe that worked for me last year or last month that aren't working today that I will cling to with a passionate persistence even though I am miserable today, right? And so I've got to be willing to set those things aside to have a new experience in my recovery today, right? Because sometimes those things don't work. Uh, as I said, I'm grateful to be here. I never do two of these workshops the same way. We'll have a break about halfway through. These sessions run about an hour and a half. I know that's a long time to sit for an alcoholic, 
Okay, I know it is. Okay, for me an hour's long. Okay, so we will take a break about halfway through so you can smoke, you can go to the bathroom, or for those of you who decide that I don't know what I'm talking about, you can leave. That's fine. Uh, and I want to say for those of you who are new, and maybe for those of you who aren't new, you know, don't, please don't come here with the expectation, because if you're like me, and I know most of you are, I'm a perfectionist. That is my nature, right? So I assume that I'm going to get every single detail perfect out of this workshop, and I'm just going to know everything about Alcoholics Anonymous there is to know. And if you come here with that expectation, you're going to be let down, okay? We're going to be covering a lot of stuff. I'm going to be giving you a lot of information. And if you retain about 25 or 30% of it, you'll probably be doing good. So my recommendation to you is please don't make this the only workshop that you go to, okay? Go to other workshops. There are lots of people out there that do. Joe and Charlie have been doing these type of things for longer than I've been alive, okay? There's lots of people out there that have a lot of great information and great insight. And what you'll find, what I've found over the years, as many of these as I've attended, is everybody's talking about the same things. You know the funny thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is I've met people that I've never met before in my life when I travel around the country. I used to have a job. I'd travel to Colorado and Georgia and New Mexico, and I would meet people in Alcoholics Anonymous. The funny thing about AA is when we work the same steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, we all come to the same conclusions, Right? We all have a spiritual experience that's guaranteed in the 12th step. We all come to the same conclusion. We all have the same experiences in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's a, that's a great thing. What I'm going to try to do these next 10 weeks is really the only thing any of us can do in AA. I'm going to try to share my experience with the program of recovery that's found in this book. I'm going to try to tell the truth to the best of my ability, which I can, I can report progress, not perfection in that area. Okay? But I'm going to try to share the truth as I know it today. And I want to give that little disclaimer because the truth as I know it today may change. And I found that in sobriety. See, it's like Sandy B says, sometimes our story can change, not because the events of our life change, but because our understanding of those events change. I'll give you an example. When I was, when I was brand new, I believed certain things because my pool of experience in recovery was about that big, right? And things would come up or people would say things that were way out here that I didn't understand at all. But the longer I've been sober, my pool of experience has expanded. And so now those things are inside my experience. And so now I go, ah, I get it. I get it. I don't claim to be the authority on the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to say that right from the start. I don't claim to be the guru. Uh, I don't want to be put on any sort of pedestal. As a matter of fact, the only thing I'm an expert in really is relapse. I spent about six years coming in and out of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous unable to stay sober. So I can claim to be an expert in that area. I had enough white chips to tile the floor. Trust me. Okay, I could have opened my own casino with all the white chips I had. But I became a student of the big book at some point. Uh, I wish to share the little bit that I've learned with uh, other people. Uh, I want to talk just for a second about how these uh, studies came about. This is nothing that I ever planned to do. As a matter of fact, and I know that people are going to find this hard to believe, every time I get asked to do one of these workshops, I go, oh, gosh. Because there's a part of me that I just hate to stand up here and be the center of attention. I'm one of those guys. I'm, just, I'm, I'm not that kind of guy that I want to be the center of attention anymore. I used to want to be the center of attention. But now I'm just happy being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. But there's two reasons that I do these workshops. Number one, because someone keeps asking me to do them. That's the first reason. And number two, as I was sharing with somebody before the meeting, one of the things that I'm grateful my sponsor taught me when I was brand new was to be a yes man in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
to be a yes man, right? Because I'm a no guy, right? I don't know. Anybody here know people, right? Yeah, I am a no guy. You ask me something, the immediate answer that's going to come out of my mouth is no, right? My kids tell me they want to do something, no. My wife tells me she wants me to wash the car, no. That is my reaction to life, naturally, okay? But what I had to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous was whenever Alcoholics Anonymous asked me to do anything to say yes. And I have always stuck by that and I've always done that. And as a result, I'm still sober today. Uh, as I said, this is not anything I ever planned on doing. I got asked to do one of these workshops in, uh, in 1992. Now, let me give you a little bit of, go back a little bit more. As I said, I spent six years coming in and out of the fellowship of AA. I got what I call fellowshipped. Okay? And that's where you go to meetings of the fellowship of AA. Okay? Two separate ideas here. The fellowship of AA and the program of AA. Two separate ideas. The fellowship of AA, the program of AA. Okay? So let's get that right off the bat. Okay? And I followed all of the advice, suggestions that I heard in the meetings of the fellowship. Right? And they people say, you know, just go to meetings, don't drink, and all this. And I, and I did that, and I did that, and I did that, and I did that, and I couldn't get sober. I couldn't get sober. And uh, in 1988, I was fortunate to meet a man who saw me at a meeting, and he came up to me after the meeting, after an, another relapse, and he said, Rob, he said, look, you know, meetings of the fellowship may be enough for some people, but they're not enough for you. You're one of those hopeless, pathetic alcoholics that's going to have to have what we call a spiritual experience, or you are not going to make it. And you're probably going to die given your, your condition. And nobody had ever told me that before. Nobody had ever said anything like that to me. And so this man introduced me to a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And we started right where we're going to start a little bit later on after our break tonight in the title page of the book. And he took me through it. And fortunately for me, he did that. Because I could have read this a hundred times and never gotten the information that was so critical to me staying sober in this book. I needed to have a teacher. I needed to have a guide. I needed to have somebody who'd been through this process to show me how to do it because I would have been unable to do it myself. See, I think one of the great truths in Alcoholics Anonymous is that I am unable to help myself, but somehow you can help me just like I can help someone else, right? And uh, I've been a student of the book ever since. I went to this first big book study in about uh, 1990 and... Uh, Somebody suggested to me, my then sponsor suggested to me that if I was going to work with other alcoholics that I needed to have a understanding of what's in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. He explained to me that I could have the best intentions in the world, but that if I didn't have a, a profound and, and basic understanding of the steps, that I could actually harm someone in the process of trying to help them. And that sounded a little rough to me, but uh, but I went to this workshop, this this big book study at this guy's house in Pleasant Hill, California, and I think I probably ended up with more questions than answers out of that first big book workshop. But I began studying it, and uh, some people call me a teacher in AA, and uh, I, I used to like that. Now I I kind of don't like it, you know. Uh, and I think it's okay to have teachers in AA, but I I much more consider myself a student of the big book in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous than a teacher of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, let me see, where am I here? Uh, purposes of the, of the workshop. I'm sorry, i got a few notes here I've taken over the years to kind of keep me on track here. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about what the purpose is not. It is not the purpose of this workshop for me to glorify me, number one. 
Okay, and that's to, and let me tell you something. It's taken me a long time to get to that place. Right? There was a long time where secretly in the back of my mind, there was a part of me that really liked being California Rod. You know what I mean? I really liked that. You know. And there was part of me that almost got offended when somebody didn't know who I was. You know what I mean? An alcoholic. You don't know who I am. You know? But I, I've started to get beyond that. I'm here to report. It's not about me. It's a really about, and my pastor gave a great sermon on it today. He talked about servitude. And that really that's the attitude I must take is that, that I'm not the light, that I'm here to, to, to bear witness to the light, that I'm here to, to give credit to the program. Because I'm not the one with the power. The program that's in this book is, is what really has the power. And it's not the purpose of this workshop for us to become intellectual scholars on the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought that for a long time, too. Maybe some of you are there. By the way, if, if you ever need to know somebody, or if you ever need to know something, okay, if you've been here for a while, or maybe if you're just brand new, always ask someone with five years, okay? Because people with five years know everything, okay? And I'm not saying that to put down anybody with five years, because when I had five years, I knew everything, right? I knew it all, right? And, uh, and fortunately, I lived through that. Fortunately, the old-timers in my group put up with me so I could get beyond that stage. But, but there really is some truth to that. And, uh, and so maybe you're here and you're thinking that the, you're going to come to this workshop and you're going to get this intellectual knowledge, that you're going to be able to go back to your group, you're going to be able to quote a few things out of the big book, sound really profound, right? And I'm here to tell you something. If that's what you're here for, you're wasting your time, right? Because there is a part of this program, okay, I shouldn't say that. Let me back up. There's not a part of this program that's spiritual. It's all spiritual. Okay? There's no spiritual part and unspiritual part. But there's no amount of intellect that can replace the spiritual thing that happens as a result of these steps. Right? And you have to get your own experience. I can sit up here. We can walk through this. I'm going to give you some of the, some of the instructions on how to work the steps. But you can't have my experience. Right? You've got to go out. You've got to apply these principles and go out and get your own experience. Right? However... Just like learning anything, just like anything, you have to have a fundamental understanding of it before you can apply it to your life. Does that make sense? It's like math. When I went to school, when I was in second, third grade, whatever it was, they taught me the basic principles of math. They taught me that how to add, subtract, multiply, divide, right? And so now that I understand the basic principles of math, when I'm confronted with a problem that requires math, I can apply those principles that I learned way back when, and I can solve whatever problem confronts me that requires math. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Okay, well our program is no different. I have to have a fundamental understanding of the basic principles before I can apply them to my life. Here's the problem. The problem is, for a guy like me, I'm an intellectual alcoholic. And I want to figure things out. Because secretly, I believe if I can just figure it out, I don't need you. I don't need my... Really, I don't need God. Really. I can just figure it all out, right? And I'm here to tell you, I've known many people that know this book inside out, upside down, backwards and forwards, who are drunk today, right? Because it's not about how much I know. How much I know doesn't mean anything, and alcoholism doesn't care about it. Alcoholics Anonymous is about what I do. It's about what I do. Interestingly enough, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't tell us how to stay sober. It tells us what to do to stay sober, right? Big difference, right? So what are the purposes of this workshop? Well, 
Number one, we want to deepen our understanding of the program of recovery that's found in the text. We want to understand the directions for working the steps of the program, the 12 steps of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, as was put in our book by our founders in 1939 when the book was published. Number two, we want to clear up some misconceptions about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know this is going to shock all of you, but I believe that there are some misconceptions about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And a lot of what I hear in the fellowship is a heck of a lot different than what I have found in this book. Okay, And I'll let you make your own judgments on that, Okay, but I think that you will agree with me by the time we're done with this 10 weeks that there is something different from what's in this book and what you may or may not hear in the fellowship. And so as we're going through this workshop, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is it possible that I have some beliefs that I was impressed upon by someone else or that I heard in the fellowship that is simply not true? Okay, so as we go through this workshop, ask yourself that question. And the third thing we want to do in this workshop the next 10 weeks is to empower people for more effective sponsorship. See, I believe, and my sponsors have believed, the mentors that I've had that I'm very grateful to, because they saved my life, <coughs> believe that sponsorship is a lost art in Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, somewhere along the line, we've gotten the idea that you could just take somebody, take them to a few meetings, take them out to coffee, give them your sage wisdom and advice, like I have sage wisdom and advice, right? And that's sponsorship. And what I think we're going to see as we go through the history, and I'm going to bring in some other historical AA-approved literature to, to make my point, is that that is not what the early members, the founders of our program, the pioneers of our program talked about when they talked about sponsorship. A sponsor had certain, get ready for it, here it comes, responsibilities obligations to the new person, okay? And I take that obligation very seriously with the men and the women that I sponsor. So those are the goals. Now, you may hear some things the next 10 weeks that are contrary to what you have been told or are contrary to what you believe. And if you have a question, if I say something during these, these, these workshops that you have heard differently or you believe otherwise, you are free to agree or disagree with anything I say. I don't have a problem with that. Just do me a favor, okay? And I'll tell you why I want you to do me this favor. Do me a favor and please, please don't leave here assuming that I'm wrong, okay? Come up to me at the break. Come up to me afterwards and tell me. And here's why. Because I've been wrong about a lot of things in my life. And this is life and death. And if I'm saying something or believing something or doing something that's not consistent with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it may kill me. Okay, so do me the service of coming up and talking to me about it. Okay, is that fair enough? All right. Now, I will tell you that 95% of what I believe I've learned in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or another uh, piece of program approved literature. And so I try to keep this thing just as accurate as I possibly can. And if I say something that's contrary to that, I suggest that you disregard it. That's perfectly okay with me. But one of the things that I've learned over the years of doing this is that... Uh, if you talk about the book Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to make some people uncomfortable, right? I remember the first workshop I went to, I couldn't sit still in my seat. It made me so uncomfortable, right? And what I found out is that I came in here with a belief system. And my belief system was as follows. If it makes me uncomfortable, right, or uneasy, it must be bad, right? It must be bad. And what I've learned today 
is that don't let your ego deceive you by falling into that trap. Because let me tell you something. If you're new, okay, if you've not worked the steps, this program asks us to do things that are going to make you uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable for me to get down on my knees with my sponsor and do the third step prayer. That was very uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable for me to share my inventory with him in a park in Concord. Okay? It was especially uncomfortable to share my sex inventory with another man. Very uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable to me to, for me to go to the people that I had harmed by my conduct and make amends. It was uncomfortable for me to go out and carry the message those first few times to that new person, right? Because I'm self-centered. I don't care about you. You know, it's all, it's about me, right? You know? And, and so that was very uncomfortable for me. And what I have found is it's those things that actually promote the recovery process in me. That it's all about getting me out of myself, not getting into myself, right? So if you are sitting here and this feeling of uneasiness or uncomfortability comes, comes about, don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? It may be because something that you believe is being challenged, and that's okay. That's okay. I've had to get comfortable with the things that I believe in being challenged, and I'm thankful that I've had sponsors who have challenged my beliefs and challenged what I did and told me, no, it's not okay for you to tell that person to F off. You need to go back and apologize, right? And I didn't want to do it, right? I'm not going to go debase myself in front of that person, but I did it anyway, right? You know, one of the things that I find interesting, and I'll, I'll end with this and get into the history here for a few minutes, is that alcoholics suffer from, I think we are, everybody suffers from this, but alcoholics especially suffer from what I call selective perception, right? And selective perception works like this. I have a belief that something's a certain way, and everything that comes into my reality, I filter through that belief, okay? And everything that agrees with it, I say, I knew I was right, right? And anything that's not consistent with that, I push it aside, even if there's proof, and I say, that can't be true. And as a result of doing that, I keep myself in everlasting ignorance, right? You know, I'm the guy that Herbert Spencer talks about in the back of the book. I'm the guy that will forever remain ignorant because I have contempt prior to investigation. That's me, right? And somehow I've got to be able to lay aside, you know, one of the things that we get back, Kathy and I were talking about at the beginning of the meeting, is we will come in here beaten, defeated, right? I came to meetings, and I'll talk a little bit about this next week when we get into Bill's story, but, you know, I came to meetings at Alcoholics Anonymous for the, the last two years of my drinking, and they'd ask me, how you doing? I'd say, I'm doing great. And I'd go home and think about killing myself, Right? And I'm the kind of guy that no matter how bad I feel, I will cling to my belief system, right? And I will fight against you having any will over me. And I will fight against changing what I believe, even if it kills me. Right? Even if it kills me. And I think that the first thing we get back here is our judgment, right? We will come in here defeated and beaten and hopeless two weeks a couple hot meals, three good nights sleep, and all of a sudden you have all the answers, don't you? Right? Right? And that's been true for me. And so all I'm going to try to do the next, the next several weeks is try to lay out the truth as best I can and let everybody draw your own experience. But I think what we're going to find as we go through this is there's really two programs in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I believe. 
I believe there's two programs. I believe that there's the program of recovery that's found in this book. And then there's what I call the program of opinions, right? And everybody's got their opinion in AA, don't they, right? You've got yours, I've got mine, you've got yours, right? But they're two completely different things, aren't they, right? My opinion is not the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Glenn's isn't, and Kathy's isn't, right? But what the great interest in these workshops has shown me over the last 15 or 20 years is the great interest by people in the program to get back to the basics of our program and what really what really created us. And I think in order to understand what really created us, we need to first talk about how we started, how what, what created Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, most people know that Bill Wilson met Dr. Bob on May 12th of 1935 in Akron, Ohio, right? Most of you know that, right? But what most people don't know is that our history actually starts five years before they ever met. Did you know that? In, in a place that you wouldn't think in Rhode Island with a guy by the name of Roland Hazard, okay? And Roland came from a wealthy uh, uh, business family, and uh, he's mentioned in our book, we'll get to there when we get into Chapter 2, and his story is kind of paraphrased in there. And, and Roland was one of these guys that, you know, he had everything going for him, but he was an alcoholic, right? And he had enough money that he could seek out all of the help that was available in the United States, and yet he continued to drink. And so he went to Zurich, Switzerland, and placed himself under the care of the most noted psychiatrist in the world at that time, a guy by the name of Carl Jung. Okay, And, and still today, people talk, when they talk about psychologists, they talk about Freud, Adler, and Jung. Okay? And I'm a psychology major, so I, I know these things. And, and, uh, and Jung is still talked about as the founder of modern psychology. Okay, And so he goes and spends a year in intensive psychotherapy with Dr. Carl Jung. And in his own words, he figures he has uncovered all of the inner traps and springs of his mind that a relapse was unthinkable. Now, bear in mind that back in those days, they didn't have planes. You couldn't take the Concorde across the uh, the pond there. It was You had to go by boat. Okay, So it's a long trip, right? So he spends a year with the greatest psychological mind, and he's on his way back to get on the boat in England to get back on the ship, and before he gets back to the boat, He's drunk, right? So he goes back to the doctor to get an answer. Now, I suppose if I was him and I just spent a year and all that money in intensive psychotherapy, I would want an, un I would want an answer, right? And he says to him, well, you know, doctor, why, you know, what's going on with me? Why can't I say? And Dr. Jung was honest. He said, Roland, listen, I've worked with a lot of people, but I have never seen an alcoholic of your type permanently recover, you know? Everyone, and he said, well, is there no hope? And then he said, well, he was almost hesitant to tell me. He said, but every once in a while, here and there, I've read about it in the books. I've never actually seen it myself. But I've read about people having these displacements and rearrangements, what some sort of spiritual experience, you know. And I've been trying to kind of create something like that in you, this reversion experience. But I've never been successful with anybody of your type. So Roland unknowingly gathered together from Dr. Jung the first part of what was to become Alcoholics Anonymous. Dr. Jung unknowingly gave Roland the solution. Okay, He told him, you have to have a spiritual experience in order to recover from alcoholism. Right. So Roland comes back to the United States, and he joins up with this religious group that was very prevalent at the time called the Oxford Movement. Okay, And the Oxford Movement was founded in 1906 by a guy by the name of Dr. Frank Buckman, 
And you could read his story. It's called On the Tale of a Comet. You might want to write that down if you're interested in history. It's a very good book. It tells all about his life and his reversion experience. And he founded this group called the Oxford Group, which actually started in Europe and came over to the United States. And it was ran in the United States by a guy by the name of Sam Shoemaker, okay, who ran it out of the Cavalry Episcopal Church in New York City, and it had spread throughout the Northeast. And so Roland joins this Oxford movement, and they had a six-step program of recovery, okay? And they weren't recovering from alcoholism. They were recovering from what they called a spiritual disease, okay, a spiritual degeneration. And their six-step program was supposed to bring about a spiritual regeneration, what we call a spiritual experience. So Roland works the six-step program of the Oxford groups, and he has this vital spiritual experience. And guess what? He stops drinking, right? So the Oxford groups unknowingly gave us the second thing that was to become Alcoholics Anonymous. They gave us a program of action, right? A six-step program of action. So while all of this is going on, there's a guy by the name of Bill Wilson. And in 1932, he's being admitted to Towns Hospital for the first time. And he comes under the care of a guy that we're going to be talking a lot about next week. His name is Dr. William D. Silkworth. Okay? He wrote the doctor's opinion in our book. And Dr. Silkworth worked at Towns Hospital in New York, and he was credited at that time with being the foremost authority in the world for the treatment of alcoholic addiction. And Dr. Silkworth had developed this theory that I'm going to talk a lot more about next week, but he developed this theory that alcoholics have a twofold problem. And somewhere along the line of one of Bill's treatments, and Bill actually had three treatments in Towns Hospital, he shared this theory with Bill for some reason. And he told him, Bill, he said, look, I don't know what the solution to your problem is. I don't know what's, what exactly to do with you, but I've developed this theory. My theory is that people like you, Bill, have a twofold illness, a physical component that I call the allergy of the body and a mental component I call the obsession of the mind. And what happens to you guys like you, Bill, is that you begin drinking because you believe you can. Your mind tells you it's okay to drink. You start drinking, and once you ingest any alcohol whatsoever, you develop a physical compulsion to continue drinking and you're unable to stop. And you drink and you drink and you drink until you have to get sober because the body cannot stay drunk 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for 14 straight days. It is physically impossible. You have to get sober sometime, right? So why would you go back to it? Well, that's the other part of the illness, Bill. The other part of the illness is that your mind will occasionally tell you, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that it's okay for you to drink. That this time, Bill, it's going to be different. And Bill, for the first time, understood what was wrong with him, right? So Dr. Silkworth gave us the third part of what was to become Alcoholics Anonymous. He told us what our problem was, right? So how does all this come together? Well, Roland, who's now up in, in Boston getting sober in Rhode Island, he, uh, he had a friend by the name of Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby had been institutionalized. As a matter of fact, the judge had told Ebby, if you come before me one more time, I'm going to lock you up and throw away the key. And Ebby had been committed for alcoholic insanity a couple of times. But this was his last chance. And so on this particular dry spell, Ebby had been sober three months. And uh, he was out in front of his house one day uh, painting his house, as the story goes. And he, uh, he got this great idea. You know, he's out there in the hot sun, you know, and I could just see the scene. And he starts to talk to himself. You ever talk to yourself like that? I call it alkalogic, right? Alkalogic, <laughs> right? And that's where you start saying to yourself, you know, I've been sober three months now. I'm sure 
that I could handle three beers, right? You ever done that? Yeah, I've done that. And so he goes down to the liquor store. Well, by the time he comes back, he's drunk, right? He's drunk. And the worst part of the story is there's these birds that have come and crapped all over his brand new freshly painted house. So he decides, here's more alcoholic for you. He decides the best thing to do is to get his shotgun and start shooting these birds off his house, right? So, of course, they call the police and they haul him off. And so he's in front of the judge and about to be committed when in walk these two guys by the name of Shep Cornell and Zebra Graves who have been sent by Roland Hazard because he has heard about Ebby about to be thrown into, into prison. And they persuade the judge to suspend his commitment that they think they have a treatment for his alcoholism, right? And so he works the six-step program of the Oxford groups. He has a spiritual experience as a result of the six steps. And then it wasn't a couple months later, the book says on page 8, that he remembers that he has this friend in New York City who was once a famous stockbroker. And he's lost everything through drinking, and his name's Bill Wilson, right? And so the story of Ebby's meeting with Bill at the kitchen table in November of 1935 is in our book, which we'll read in a couple of weeks where he goes and he starts telling him about this Oxford groups and this, this, uh, this vital spiritual experience from Roland, from, uh, Dr. Carl Jung. And Bill, all of a sudden the light bulb went on in his mind, right? Now remember, Bill's already got the problem. He knows what the problem is. He knows about the allergy and the obsession. He got that from Dr. Silkworth, right? But all of a sudden here in walks Ebby, giving him the solution, the idea of a spiritual experience and a program of action. Now many people know many things about Bill. Many people know that he was a stock speculator, that he took the bar exam. He was actually a, a certified lawyer, although he never practiced law. But what many people don't know is that when he was a young man, he studied engineering. He was actually wanted to be an electrical engineer. And if you ask an electrical engineer, do you have a formula for solving a problem, they'll tell you absolutely. We've had it for thousands of years. It's very simple. It goes like this. The first thing you need to know to solve any problem is you need to know what the problem is. And we got that from Dr. Silkworth, didn't we? He told us we had an allergy and an obsession. The second thing you know to solve any problem is you need to know if there's a solution, what that solution is. And we got that from Dr. Carl Jung, the idea of a spiritual experience to remove the obsession to drink. And the third thing you need, and the most important thing, is you can have a problem and a solution, but no way to get from the problem to the solution. The third thing you need is you need to have a practical program of action to get from the problem to the solution. And we got that from the Oxford groups. They had a six-step program designed to bring about this spiritual experience. So the reason we call Bill Wilson the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous is he was the first one to have all three ideas in his head at the same time, right? So Bill checks into the the hospital on uh, December the 14th, December the 11th of 1935 for the last time. While he's there, Ebby visits him, and Bill works the six-step program of the Oxford groups, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. And he has this vital spiritual experience, which the description of that's on page 14 in the big book, where he talks about the great clean wind of the mountaintop blowing through and through and feeling lifted up and the great white light and all this stuff, right? And he calls Dr. Silkworth to see if he's lost his mind. Bill thinks he's losing his mind, you know? And Silkworth says to him, and thank God he did, he said, Bill, you know, I don't know what has happened to you, but it's better than the way you were, so I suggest you hold on to it, right? And what Bill didn't realize at the time is that was the date of his last drink, December the 11th, 1934. It's his last drink, right? And so he immediately begins to try to help other people. He's unsuccessful at doing so. And he's trying to get himself reestablished in, in business. And, and his first 
so he, he's going out trying to grab these guys off bar stools. He's going down to the bars and bordellos trying to grab these guys off their bar stools, right? And tell them about this great spiritual experience he's had. And they're like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> and so he goes back to Dr. Silkworth one day and he's depressed and he says, you know, I've been trying to help these guys and nobody will listen to me. And he says, well, Bill, I think you're going about it wrong. He says, you need to do what I did with you. First, hit them with the problem. Tell them what their problem is. Tell them about the allergy and the obsession. Once they see that they're hopeless, once they understand the hopelessness of their situation, then you can tell them about their spiritual experience in this little program of action you got. So Bill decides that this makes sense, so he's going to try it on his next approach. Well, his next approach happens to come on a business trip to Akron, Ohio. Bill's trying to get reestablished in business. He goes to be part of a pro what they call a proxy fight, which is where they send people on behalf of a group to take control of a company, okay? So Bill is to participate as sort of the head of this group. And uh, it looks like his group is going to actually win this, this bid for this company. But somebody recognizes Bill, and they recognize him as an alcoholic. And so they kind of spread some rumor and some gossip, and the whole deal falls apart because somebody recognized Bill and kind of put out there that he was a drinker. And, uh, and so Bill finds himself uh, on May the 11th of 1935 in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel in Akron. He's got $10 in his pocket, which is not enough to pay his hotel bill, but it is enough to buy a few drinks. And at one end of the lobby, he sees a hotel bar, right? And he can hear the laughter, and he can see the people inside having a good time. And at the other end of the bar, or at the other end of the lobby, he sees a church directory, right? And he has a decision to make, and in Bill's own words, he said that he was on thin ice for the first time in his six months now of sobriety. And he said a quick prayer for guidance because he knew he could go into that bar and get drunk on his $10, you know, and $10 in those days was a lot of money. But he doesn't. He goes to the church directory, and he puts his, at, at random, puts his finger on a name on the church directory. It's a big church directory, lots of names on it. And it was the name of a guy by the name of Dr. Walter Tunks, who was an Episcopal minister in Akron. So he calls Dr. Tunks up, it's a, it's a Saturday, and he gets a hold of him, or it's a Sunday, excuse me, gets a hold of him, and uh, says, look, I'm, I'm from New York, I'm an alcoholic, and I need an alcoholic to work with. In Bill's own words, he would later say that it was for the first time in that lobby of that hotel room that he realized that he needed those other alcoholics more than they needed him. The idea that I must serve in order to keep what I have, right? And he gives him a list of ten names, the first nine, nothing. But the tenth name, he called up, he stayed on the phone, he calls her up, and it was a lady by the name of Henrietta Cyberling. And Henrietta Cyberling was a, a very well-to-do member of the Akron community. Her father, uh, Roy Cyberling, was the founder of uh, Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. Okay, And she lived on the, on the estate, the Cyberling estate, there in the gatehouse. And so she, she had been praying for this friend of hers, as Bill calls on the phone, that had recently come out of the closet. She was also an Oxford Group member, by the way, Henrietta Cyberling. And this friend of hers, this doctor, had recently come out of the closet as a closet alcoholic, and his name was Dr. Bob Smith. And so she, she immediately knew, she would later say in her memoirs, that when that phone rang and she heard Bill, that it was an answer from God, that God had sent some, an angel from New York to help Dr. Bob. Right, And so she called over to Annie Smith and said, listen, I have this guy from New York. I think he's here. God sent him here to, to help Dr. Bob. And it was Mother's Day. 
And uh, she said, well, that would be great, and it's Mother's Day, and Dr. Bob has brought me home a potted plant for Mother's Day, and he's under the table potted himself right now, so tomorrow would probably be better. And so they made an agreement to meet the following day, and uh, Dr. Bob, I could just see him, he agrees to speak with Bill while he's in a drunken stupor, and so the next day, I'm sure when he comes to, he's like, oh my God, I agreed to talk with this guy from New York, and, you know, and he, he made her promise it would only be 20 minutes, 20 minutes, that's it, you know. And we know today that they literally talk for hours, right? We know today that they talk for hours at the gatehouse there. And Dr. Bob would later say that Bill Wilson was the first person that he ever met that knew what he was talking about when it came to alcoholism, right? And this is a doctor, right? This is a medical doctor. But Bill did something different. He didn't go preaching to Dr. Bob like he had done with those guys in the bars and the bordellos back in New York. He told him his own experience, right? He told, and if you're like me, I mean, alcoholics, we get, we've got more advice than for like a thousand lifetimes, right? I mean, I got more advice. I mean, people just walk up to you on the street that don't even know you, you know, and say, you need to quit drinking, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it really is true, you know. They don't even have to know you, they're giving you advice, right? But he didn't do that. He said, let me tell you what happens to me when I drink, right? And he told him about the many times he had said, I'll never do it again, right? And a day later or a week later found himself in a bar asking himself how it happened, right? And Dr. Bob said, well, that's what's been happening to me. And he said, well, there's this little doctor in New York who explained to me that the reason that that happens to me is that I have this obsession of the mind, right? He also told him about the many, many, many times that he had stopped into a little bar or roadside place saying, I'm only going to have two drinks and ended up leaving the bar at three in the morning, right? And Dr. Bob said, well, that's exactly what's been happening to me. And he said, well, this same little doctor explained to me that the reason that happens is that I have a physiological allergy to alcohol, that once I start drinking, it devel I develop a compulsion, and I cannot stop, right? And Dr. Bob understood the nature of his problem for the first time. So Dr. Bob had been a member of the Oxford groups at that point for two and a half years in Akron, okay? And he had done the entire Oxford group program, but he, except for one small detail, he was unwilling to do what we now call the ninth step, right? What they called restitution, right? He was unwilling to do it because he figured that he was a, he was a doctor, right? That if he if anyone knew, and he lived under that delusion that some of us do that no one knows about our drinking, right? He lived under that delusion, right? And so uh, he figured if he let people know he was an alcoholic, it would ruin what remained of his his medical practice, and and so he was he was unwilling to do it, but. And, and he went to an AMA convention and got drunk, and Bill stayed in Akron. The long story short, he comes back from this AMA convention, and Bill says, look, you have one of two choices to make. You can, you're either going to die drunk or you're going to apply the program of the Oxford Group. And so Dr. Bob, on June the 10th of 1935, he had a surgery to do that morning. So he came, he gets off this, this, this train from Atlantic City from this AMA convention after two weeks. He's been drunk the whole time. And he has his surgery to do the next morning. And so Bill gives him two bottles of beer to steady his hands so he can go perform this surgery. Now, here's the part that some of you may not know. Dr. Bob wasn't just a doctor. He was a proctologist. Okay? Now, we don't know what happened to the patient. Okay? We know he lived. That's all we know. Okay? Maybe he whistled when he walked. I'm not sure. Okay? But the patient lived, and, and Dr. Bob went around to everyone he knew that same day, first day of sobriety, June 10th, 1935, and made amends to everyone that he could think of, and he never drank again, and that's what we call Founder's Day. It was the first time in our history 
The two alcoholics got together and were able to maintain permanent sobriety, right? So there's two of them sober. And uh, I always say that God had a sense of humor in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, he knew we'd be dealing with cheats and assholes, and that's why he, ha- he got a proctologist from Akron and a lawyer from New York, right? <laughs> right. So they immediately begin helping other alcoholics. Bill Dodson, who's AA number three, got sober shortly thereafterwards. He was Dr. Bob's first sponsee. Dr. Bob was a week and a half sober when he picked up his first sponsee. I'll be coming back to that later on. <clears throat> And uh, they started working with other alcoholics. I'm going to cut this a little short here because we're going to take our break. But uh, in 1937, which is two years later, they, they started to take a head count. And what they found was from the original three members in 1935, they had 40 sober members. And so they started to, uh, to say, well, you know, how can we, how can we you know, get the word out? What can we do? And they developed this plan. And the short version of the story is they had a three-part plan. First, they needed a chain of hospitals. That was the first thing that they need, which is kind of funny because it's in the middle of the Depression. Not any of them has a dime, you know what I mean? And the second part of the plan was they needed paid missionaries that were going to go around the countryside and spread the message, okay? And the third thing they needed, and it didn't sound very important at the time, was a book of their experience. You know, at some point, you know, we should write a book because, you know, everybody kind of writes a book, you know? And uh, so they tried to get money. I mean, they did a lot of stuff. They tried to go door to door. They tried to uh, get rich people to invest their money in this new program for alcoholics. And what they found was people aren't very sympathetic towards alcoholics, you know. I mean, they'd go to these rich people and they'd say, look, buddy, we give our money to the March of Dimes and the Red Cross and, you know, people like that. You know, the alcoholics did it to yourself, you know. And so uh, so the, the, the missionaries were out, the hospitals were out, but then they started talking about this idea, this this book of their experience. And there seems to be some debate in the fellowship about who wrote the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to clear it up for you right now, okay? Bill Wilson wrote the book Alcoholics Anonymous. If anybody tells you anything other than that, they need to check the history, okay? Bill wrote the first two chapters of our book in 1937. That's his story. Nobody else wrote his story. And the chapter called There is a Solution, okay? Chapters 3 and 4 were written by what we would call today group conscience, he would write them. He would go to Honors Dealers in New Jersey, which was owned by a guy by the name of Hank Parkhurst, who was his right-hand man in New York. And he would recite, and Ruth Hawk, our first general service secretary, would type, right? And then when they got done, they'd take these, and they'd send them to the group in Akron, and they'd send them to the group in New York, and they'd make red marks and notes and so forth, and they'd send it back, and he'd redo it, okay? And from Chapter 5, something happened, and we're not going to talk about it now, but Bill began writing solo after chapter 5, okay? After chapter 5, he began writing solo. The big debate became, so Bill's writing the book, what to call the book, right? You know, alcoholics, we like to debate about something, right? And so they talked about many different names, many different titles for the book. Uh, B, Bill wanted to call it the BW movement, of course, you know, and the, the, the alcoholics didn't like that. They talked about calling it the dry way was one of the names. The empty glass was one of the names. But it came down to the last two were The Way Out and Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, the, the, re- the way The Way Out came about was in, in Chapter 2 on page 17, it says, We have a way out upon which we can absolutely agree. That's where that name came from. And the, the title Alcoholics Anonymous actually came from a guy in the Akron group who said, Well, we're alcoholics who want to remain anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And Bill liked the name Alcoholics Anonymous. He was really pushing for that name. And they took a vote, and by a slim majority, the way out actually won, right? Now, Bill, what they didn't realize is Bill was cunning, baffling, and powerful too, right? <laughs> so he called old Fritz Mayo, who lived in New York. He said, Fritz, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go down to the Library of Congress, and I want you to find out for me how many books are called The Way Out and how many are called Alcoholics Anonymous. And get back to me as soon as you can. So he called him back in about an hour and he said, Bill, I got some news for you. He said, there are 24 other books called The Way Out and none called Alcoholics Anonymous. And Bill, of course, felt he had a moral obligation to share that with the group. And I don't know about you, but most alcoholics don't like to be second at anything, let alone 25th, right? So we became the first and only Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, not the 25th Way Out, right? The book did not sell very well. And I'll cut this real short. <clears throat> they had 5,000 copies that were sitting in the warehouse and nobody would buy them, right? Nobody would buy them. We had 100 members by 1939. Well, it was about 100. It was actually 79 men and one woman. Bill would later. That's about 100. I know how that works. <laughs> and, uh, and so <clears throat> eventually we got some press. Jack Alexander wrote his famous article in the Saturday Evening Post in 1941. And by the time that the, uh, the second edition of our book was printed, our membership had, had reached a million people. Okay? That's a lot. Today, the book Alcoholics Anonymous is the second highest selling book in history. Sold over 20 million copies. Right? And today, our fellowship number is over 3 million members. Now, here's the miracle of it. The miracle, I think, is that we even have a book at all. I mean, you try to get 100 alcoholics to agree on anything. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that in itself is a miracle. The other miracle is that I don't believe a man like Bill Wilson could have written a book like this. Bill talks about, and if you study this book, and I see things in there brand new all the time, right? I've been studying it for over 20 years, and I find things in there all the time that I go, when did they put that in there, right? But I don't believe Bill Wilson could have written a book like this because he talks about things that he hadn't experienced yet, right? And that's why I believe, and many people like me believe, that this book is divinely inspired, right? How many people here believe that, right? Now, I'm not just saying that because I, it sounds good or I heard it in a meeting. I'm saying that because I don't believe there's any other way that it's possible, right? Now, let me ask you a question. If I start changing something that's divinely inspired, what am I doing? I'm playing God, aren't I, right? I'm playing God. And I choose not to play God in Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's take a five-minute break. Five minutes. All right, we're going to get started here. We're going to run a few minutes over, and I apologize in advance, but as usual, I talk longer than I should have. <clears throat> All right, let's uh, start by opening the title page of the book, where it says Alcoholics Anonymous in big letters. looks something like this. Everybody see that? All right? All right. Even alcoholics should be able to find that. All right. And you'll notice on the title page, and I think it's important to start with the title page, that it tells us what al the book Alcoholics Anonymous is. It says, the story, everybody with me? No? The story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered. Everybody circle that word. Very important word. Recovered. We're going to come back to that. That's the first of about five times it's going to use that word. I want to point out that it does not say are recovering are in a long process of recovery. It says they have recovered. Okay? And we're going to find out what that means here in a couple of pages. How many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism? Now, I have a third edition book 
which is sentimental to me because it was given to me at the last treatment program I went through. And the reason it's sentimental is because I spent about $10,000 to go through it, and it's the only thing I have. <laughs> so it's a $10,000 big book, right? <laughs> now, if somebody had told me, I could have got one for 6 bucks back then, <laughs> right? But I didn't, okay? But in the third edition, if you see my book, there's a little circle and a triangle. Everybody see that? Now, in the fourth edition, they don't have that. Okay, And there's a reason for that, and the reason is because the General Service Office in New York, that was our logo for many years, and the General Service Office in New York decided several years ago that it wasn't worth paying the money and going to the expense, that it wasn't going to benefit Alcoholics Anonymous to retain the copyright on the circle and triangle logo. Okay, So they decided to let that go. Okay, And that was their decision, and I'm, that's fine. I'm fine with that, whatever, you know. But I think it's the only unfortunate thing is, is I think that there's some significance. And when I went through this book with my first sponsor, Carl H., Pappy Carl H., he pointed out to me that there's a significance to the circle and the triangle. Do we have one in here somewhere? No? In the front? And he explained to me that, that Alcoholics Anonymous is really like a stool with three legs. And then on one side of the stool is the idea of recovery which is what we're going to talk about in this book, okay? The steps of recovery, the 12 steps. That is the recovery portion of the program. Then there's the side of the triangle that says service. And that's really what we do in the 12th step and also the concepts for world service, if you get a chance, and Glenn can tell you a lot about that. And then, at the, and then, and then on the, the, the left-hand side is the word unity. And that's what we do in the fellowship, and that's why we have the traditions and and I used to think that the traditions saved me from all of you. And what I found out later is they saved you from me, right? Yeah. Okay, so just kind of interesting there. All right, let's turn to the uh, preface of the book. The preface of the book. It's going to tell us right here what kind of book we have, and I'm going to go a little fast to hopefully save some, uh, some time here. But if I go too fast for you, just catch me after the meeting. And it says in the first paragraph, not the first paragraph, the second paragraph, excuse me, it says, because, everybody with me? Because this book has become the basic text of our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Let's stop right there. First thing it tells us is what kind of book we have, doesn't it? It says it's a textbook, right? And what is a textbook? A textbook is a book to study a subject, right? The purpose of a textbook, any textbook, is to transfer information from the mind of the writer to the mind of the reader. That is the, there's also another word for that that means almost the same thing. It's the word teaching, right? The transference of information to the mind of, from the mind of one person to the mind of another, okay? So this book is not a novel. It's not a thriller. It's not a mystery, thank God, right? It is a textbook. Now, why is that important? Because I must read it like I read a textbook, right? I don't read it like I read a novel, shed a few tears, put it on the shelf, and never read it again and give it away at the next garage sale, do I? Right? No, I must study it. I must understand its contents, okay? Just like we talked about in the introduction, right? But remember that the longest journey for an alcoholic is from here to here, right? And that's the challenge that I still face today, right? How to get it from here where I know it into here where I feel it, right? So it's a textbook, and it goes on to say, it also says, 
Oh, let me stop right there. Text, go back to textbook for a minute. Okay, so it's a textbook. The transference of information from the mind of the writer to the mind of the reader. What information do you think that this book is designed to transfer? Right? Back to the title page. Right? The story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. The purpose of this textbook is very simple. To show me how I, too, can recover from alcoholism. That's it. That's the purpose of this textbook. Right? It also says it's helped such a large number of men and women to recovery, and because of that, there exists a sentiment, and there still exists a sentiment, against any radical changes being made in it. So why don't we change the big book? Because it works, right? Because of the results. Very simple, right? If it didn't work, we'd be doing something different. The reason we don't change the text of Alcoholics Anonymous is the results. And we're going to get, when we get into the forward to the second edition, we're going to find out what some of those results are, okay? It goes on to say in the next paragraph, therefore, stop right there. Okay? In other words, what they're saying is, because this book has helped so many men and women to recovery, therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third, and fourth editions. Let's stop right there for a minute. So, it says, therefore, the first portion of this volume, everybody circle that. Very important to understand that the book is divided into several different portions. The first portion is called the text. That is the first from page 1 to 164 and the doctor's opinion. That is the text. Okay? The second portion is what I call the entertainment section. Okay? That is the stories in the back of the book. And the third portion is the appendices. Those were addendums to the book. In other words, they were things that were added after the book was originally published. And if you look in the back of the book, they have an appendices on the Alaska Award, how to contact Alcoholics Anonymous, a medical view on AA, a religious view on AA, the traditions which weren't even written when the book was published, etc., etc., etc. Spiritual experience appendix, okay? They're all found. They were all additions to the book afterwards. So what this says is the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program. Everybody circle that. Not an AA recovery program, not one AA recovery program, not part of the AA recovery program. No, it says here, according to what I'm reading, that the first portion of this volume describes nothing more and nothing less than the AA recovery program. Right? Everybody see that? Okay. So let me ask you a question. If the first portion of this volume describes the AA recovery program, if I want to find the AA recovery program, where am I going to have to look? In this book, right? So that means I'm not going to find it in a meeting, am I? Right? I'm not going to find it from my sponsor. I'm going to find it in the first 164 pages or the text of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So therefore, by inference, I can conclude that everything that is not in the first 164 pages of this book is not the ARA recovery program or it is someone's opinion, right? Including mine and including yours, right? Kind of interesting, kind of interesting. All right, uh, let's go to the forward to the first edition. Forward to the first edition. All right, everybody circle that first word, we... Now, I've been in a lot of meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have heard people sit in meetings and say, well, it's a we program, right? Everybody ever heard that? Okay. 
Well, it tells us who the we is here, right? In the first sentence of the forward of the first edition, it says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered, there's that word again, who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Let's stop right there, okay? So, when they talk about the we of Alcoholics Anonymous, see, and I used to sit in meetings when I was brand new, and if you're brand new, and I used to hear them say, if you want what we have, and I'd look around and I'd go, man, I know I don't want what I have, but I'm not real sure, right? Okay, maybe some of you have had that experience, right? But what I didn't understand and what had to be explained to me is the we, the our, and the us of this program is the first 100 members that wrote this book. They're reporting action that they took. Here's what we did, right? We all, as a group, collectively all took these steps. We all admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable, okay? But here's what I want you to understand if you're new, okay? And there is a part of this program that's unity, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. But we are not going to take my inventory, are we? I am, right? We are not going to make my amends. I am, right? We are not going to admit I'm powerless. That's something I have to do all by myself. As a matter of fact, the big book says I have to concede to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic, right? See, there are certain things in Alcoholics Anonymous that only the individual can do all by himself within the recesses of his mind and his heart. Right? And that's something I had to learn. And my sponsor and the old timers in the fellowship where I got sober helped me along the path and thank God they did. I needed them. Right? But there were certain things that I had to be willing to do. Right? So the we, the our and the us of this program is the first 100 members. Okay? That's who wrote this stuff down. Alright. So, remember that's important also because most books I've, I've read, okay, only had the experience of one person. Right? And remember, Bill wrote the words, okay, but he's sharing the collective experience of those first 79, okay? That's what went in the book, right? He says, and then he goes on to say, to show, uh, excuse me, more than 100 men and women who have recovered, there's that word again, second time we found it, right? Not our recovering, from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Circle those two words, important words. We're going to be talking about those a little bit this week and a lot more next week. Because when they talk about the mind of the alcoholic, okay, they're talking about the obsession of the mind. When they talk about the body of the alcoholic, they're talking about the allergy of the body, okay? So when they talk about recovering from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, they're talking about having recovered from the allergy of the body, the physical allergy, and the obsession of the mind. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. It goes on to say, to show... Everybody circle that. To show, not to tell, right? Not to tell, right? They're not going to tell us this is what we should do. They're going to tell us what they have done, right? There's a difference, right? I can tell you how to fly a plane, right? But I guarantee you it will be more effective if I show you, right? <laughs> right. It says to show other alcoholics. Let's stop right there, okay? Important to remember, they did not write this book for themselves to show other alcoholics. They didn't need a book of recovery. They were already sober, right? You see, they wrote this book so that we, in 2009, would have the same opportunity that they had in 1939 when the book was published, right? To show other alcoholics 
precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Okay? To show other alcoholics precisely, everybody circle that word, very important word. Precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Now, I want everybody to remember, getting back to the history, and I didn't talk about this because we ran short on time, but in 1939, the book Alcoholics Anonymous was the 12-step call. Okay? In other words, when you would call or contact Alcoholics Anonymous in 1939, they would get your address, you'd send your $3.50 with a money-back guarantee, and what would arrive at your door? The book, Alcoholics Anonymous. It didn't come with a guy like Glenn to say, Hi there, I'm Glenn, I'll be your sponsor, I'll be showing you the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It didn't work that way. You got the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So it needed to contain everything you needed to get sober. And that's why the book says to show others how we have recovered is the purpose of this book. Because they knew that the book had to contain everything we needed okay, to get started on the road to recovery. right? And then it says an interesting word. It says to show others what? Precisely how we have recovered. Third time, right? To show others precise. Now, Bill was a lawyer, as I said in the intro, and it would have been real easy. He writes like a lawyer, okay? He uses very specific words. I mean, very specific things, okay? It would have been really easy to let himself off the hook and say to show other alcoholics generally how we got sober is the main purpose of this book, right? It would have been very easy for him to say to show other alcoholics a guideline for how we got sober is the main purpose of this book. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says the main purpose of this book is to show other alcoholics precisely, exactly, specifically how we got sober. That is the main purpose of this book, right? So, so the, another way of saying that, by the way, is to show other alcoholics precisely how to apply the AA program that we talked about in the preface of the book, right? Another way of kind of saying the same thing, right? And that's an important idea because we're going to be talking about that more uh, as we go on, okay? Now, uh, let's see here. Where are we going here? Let's go over to the forward to the second edition. And, and, and while we're there on that first page there, it's page XV in my book. It might be one number off in your book. You're going to have to figure it out. But prior to 1939 when they wrote the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, they had a program of recovery. It was a word-of-mouth program. Okay, And that's where one person would pass it to another, and then they would pass it to someone else. That's how Bill passed it to Dr. Bob, and then the two of them passed it to Bill Dodson. And from that, the first... 40 members got sober. And that was okay back then because the fellowship was small. Okay, But part of their reason for writing the book was to find a way to make sure that we had the same opportunity that they had. I want to read you something from Pass It On. This is the story of Bill Wilson's life here. When he talks about their motivation for writing the big book, it says here, we could therefore no longer be a seldom heard of secret society. Word-of-mouth communication with the few alcoholics we could contact by our then-current methods would not only be slow, but dangerous. wonder why. Because the recovery message in which we now had such a high confidence might soon become garbled and twisted beyond recognition. Clearly, our budding society and its message would have to be publicized, right? 
So the reason for writing the book was not only to be able to carry the message, but to preserve the message of recovery that they found, wasn't it? Right? So that it wouldn't get, in his words, garbled and twisted beyond recognition. Right? You see, they were having those problems even back in 1939. Right? As one group would start and they would carry the word of mouth message. Anybody ever here ever play the telephone game when they were a kid? Anybody ever play that game? Right? Yeah, I know somebody's stolen this line from me, but this has started with me. But that's where I tell him something, and it goes around this way. And by the time it gets over here, what happened to it? It's completely different, isn't it? Right? Well, that's what they were afraid was going to happen with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank God they wrote it down in a book. Because let me tell you something. We still have a word-of-mouth program today. Right? <laughs> you hear it at every single meeting, don't you? Right? And everybody's got their opinion on the book alcohol, even though we've got the written program. Right? Think of what our program would be like today if we didn't have the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll leave that to your imagination. Right? All right. Forward to the second edition. And we're going to start. Uh, where are we going to start? We'll start here. Bottom of the first page of the forward to the second edition. The spark that was to flare into the first AA group was struck in Akron, Ohio in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician. The physician, six months earlier, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, the six months earlier, the broker had been relieved of his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an Oxford group, an, an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of that day. He had also been greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism who is now accounted no less than a medical saint by AA members and whose story of the early days of our society appears in the next chat pages. From this doctor, the broker had learned the grave nature of alcoholism. Let's stop right there. Okay, so we know what Dr. Silkworth gave Bill was the allergy and the obsession, step one. That's what he gave him. That's where we get step one from was from Dr. Silkworth, the twofold admission of defeat. Right? I am powerless over alcohol because I have an obsession in the mind and an allergy of the body. Right? Though he could not accept all of the tenets of the Oxford groups, he was convinced of a need for a moral inventory, confession of personality defects, restitution to those harmed. I want to point out that that does not say apology to those harmed. Helpfulness to others and necessity of belief and dependence upon God. Prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked with hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic, but he had succeeded in keeping sober, only in keeping himself sober. The broker had gone to Akron on a business venture, which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must. Everybody circle that. Now, one of the things I've heard is there are no musts in the program of AA. Anybody ever heard that? Okay. Yeah. Well, there's 78 in my book, okay? <laughs> now, I'm not saying that, that maybe there's more, but I know there's no less, okay? There's 78 I've found, okay? <clears throat> my sponsor told me that it's, it's only suggested till you want to get sober. Then there's musts and, and uh, directions, and there's even a demand in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. We'll get to that later. The alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician. Now listen to this. The physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. Dr. Bob had been to six dry-out farms. See, they didn't have 30-day treatment centers like we have today, but they had dry-out farms. And he would go, and he would try to get himself together and hydrotherapy and so forth and so on, and he had failed. He'd been a member of the Oxford group for two and a half years. goes on to say, 
But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, step one, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. He sobered, never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. Let's stop right there for a second. There's a couple points I want to make in here, and we'll move on quickly. You notice that it says here that he began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady, right? We're going to find out on page 64 when we get into the fourth step that we have a spiritual malady, right? And I believe that a spiritual malady requires a spiritual remedy, right? You see, self cannot overcome self. I do not believe human power can solve a spiritual malady. I believe the spirit must heal the spirit, right? The spirit must heal the spirit. Now, I know all of you have heard this. How many people have heard this? Show of hands. AA is a self-help program. Anybody ever heard that? Self-help program? Yeah, most of you. Okay. Well, I would challenge anyone to find for me where in this book it says, I help me. Okay? You see, as a matter of fact, what it's going to tell me when we get a little bit further on in the book on page 45 is that lack of power is my dilemma. I must find a power, and the power solves the problem. I do not solve the problem. See, so I think it's a misnomer to think that Alcoholics Anonymous is a self-help program, right? All right. It goes on to say, this seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, not just work, strenuous work, right? When we get into working with others, it's going to say another word, very similar, it also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital, another interesting word, to permanent recovery. Let's stop right there for a minute, okay? Vital to permanent recovery. This is the first of seven times in the book they're going to tell me if I don't work with other alcoholics, I will drink. I will drink, okay? And I'm here to tell you, I've been around enough AA meetings in the last few days that I've been sober to tell you that I have seen that I have seen people that work the first 11 steps and then they fade back into self-centeredness. They don't want to work with those new guys. They don't want to be troubled with all that stuff. You know, let the new people do that stuff. And I'm here to tell you for me that is the kiss of death. The kiss of death, right? And I'll talk more about that when we get into the 12 step. But it's vital it says. Life sustaining, that's what the word vital means. You might want to write that down. Life sustaining to permanent recovery. And that's what I'm doing here. And listen, we work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous one day at a time, no question about it. But my goal today is permanent recovery. Okay? That's what I'm here for. Okay? Because I know what's out there, whether it's next week, next month, or next year. If I go drinking, I know what's out there. My goal in Alcoholics Anonymous is permanent recovery. And I know today, and if you're new, let me be the first one to tell you, you never have to drink again. You never have to drink again. And I did not believe that when I got here. I couldn't even imagine a week sober. Okay? But I'm here to tell you that if I do a few simple things that this book's going to outline, I never have to drink again. All right? All right. Uh, it says, Hence the two men set to work most frantically upon alcoholics arriving at the ward of Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate run, recovered immediately and became AA number three. He never had another drink, right? That's Bill Dodson. So now you got three, right? You got three right now. 
This work continued at Akron through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholics. So they realized in 1937 that they had found something. They didn't know what it was at that time, but they knew that they had found something. Okay, They were all scared to death, but they were hanging together, right? And remember, by 37, they had 40 sober members. Okay, It goes on to say, a second small group had promptly taken shape in New York, and besides, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up the basic ideas in Akron and New York and were trying to form groups, uh, AA groups, in other cities. Okay, Now, I want to point something out because it talks about AA groups. In 1939, when our book was printed, there were three meetings in the world. There was a group in New York, there was a group in Cleveland, okay, and there was a group in Akron. Okay, Now, in those days, they had one meeting a week. Okay, We're going to find that out when we get into a vision for you. Okay, So when we get a new person, what's the first thing we tell them to do? Go to 90 meetings in 90 days, right? Right? You know how long it would have taken you to go to 90 meetings in 1939? Two years and six months. Right? Now, I bring that up for one reason and one reason only. And if you're new, let me be the first one to tell you. I think it's great that we have so many meetings to go to. And if you're new, I suggest you go to a whole bunch. Okay? But here's what happens sometimes. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we get into the, the forwards here is sometimes people, by the process of substitution, think that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is about going to meetings, not about working the program of AA, right? And that's why, because what's the first thing we tell people? We don't tell them, work the steps. We tell them, go to lots of meetings, don't we, right? My first sponsor told me, you go to as many meetings as you think you need to go to, but a minimum of three a week, but in the process, you work the 12 steps, Right? Because that's what's going to save your bacon, my friend. Right? And I'm grateful that he did. Right? Because the fellowship can only keep a guy like me sober for so long, and we're going to find out why in a few minutes. You see, I'm beyond human aid. I'm beyond human aid. I need something other than the fellowship to keep me sober. It goes on to say, it was now time that the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 with the publication of this volume, okay, this book, okay, so the book Alcoholics Anonymous is the first Alcoholics Anonymous that the world ever saw, everybody with me so far, right, and what did it contain, it says it contained their message and their unique experience, their message, their experience, when we get to page 19, it's also going to add the word their knowledge, okay, three things went in the book, their knowledge, their unique experience, their message, right, we're coming back to that. It says the membership had then reached about 100 men and women. The fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began to call itself Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. So, see, I always thought that the book Alcoholics Anonymous was named after the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And it's not that way, is it? It says that the fellowship took its name from the book, right? Now, why is that important? Here's why. Because in 1939, when the book was printed, the message of recovery that was in the book... And the message of recovery that they were talking about in the fellowship were exactly the same, right? Remember, it was a book of their experience, right? So they're the same, right? But something began to happen. 
You see, over the course of time, as meetings began to spread out, and I believe that our fellowship grew much faster than our founders ever could have expected. Okay, Bill had a map in his wall in the general service office in New York, and he put little stick pins where new groups would pop up, right? And when all of a sudden we went from three groups to 30 groups to 300 groups to 3,000 groups to 30,000 groups, okay, and they'd send out these books, right? All of a sudden, their fear that the message of recovery that would get garbled began to happen because people began to see power in the fellowship, right? And there is power in the fellowship, isn't there, right? There's something powerful about being around other people that suffer from the same illness you do, isn't there? There's power in being around people who say, we understand when all we've heard all our life is we don't understand you, right? There's some power in that. There's power in that for me, right? And so people started questioning the need for all, all of the work that's called for in here, right? Right? I mean, we look for easier, softer ways, don't we? Right? And I'm here to tell you, I'm an easier, softer way kind of guy. So if you give me the option between go to meetings and don't drink and write an inventory of all the things that you've ever done, I'm going to naturally gravitate towards this, right? And I tried that, and many people tried to do that. And so what began to happen is we started to get what's called fellowship sobriety, right? Where people started doing things. We've all heard them, right? Just go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Don't drink, right? You all heard that, right? Meeting makers make it, right? There's no must in AA, right? Don't get in any relationships in your first year, right? Do it however you want. I've heard that one, right? <laughs> There's no right or wrong way to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And people started hearing that stuff, right? And none of those things are in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. They're all someone's opinion. And eventually what began to happen is other influences started to come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? People started bringing their psychiatrist stuff. Their psychiatrist told them into AA, right? Eventually, there was the recovery house and treatment center boom of the 70s and 80s, right? And they started bringing this recovery center stuff into alcoholics and this treatment center stuff in. Eventually, there was other literature, right? And there's tons of literature out there, right? You can go online, any recovery website, and find Uncle Joe's four-step guide, right? Now, I'm not judging. I'm not judging any. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not judging any of that stuff, okay? All that stuff is fine if someone has a use for it. But what I will tell you is this, that that is different from this, right? It's different from Alcoholics Anonymous. And as all that stuff began to filter into Alcoholics Anonymous, our program began to get diluted, okay? Our program began, the clarity that they had in those early days of our program began to get diluted. Now, that's not just my opinion. I want to read you something from Dr. Bob of the Good Old Times. He might have known something about our program, huh? And this is actually a quote from Clarence Snyder. Some of you may know him. Clarence was actually a founding member of AA in Central Florida. He was one of the first 100. He actually started the Cleveland group. And it says, that's the trouble, Clarence said. They take it so casually today. I think a little discipline is necessary. I think AA was more effective in those old days. Records in Cleveland show that 93% of those who came to us never had a drink again. 93% recovery rate in Cleveland. When I discovered that people had slips in AA, it really shook me up. It's all watered down so much today, right? Over the course of time, our program has gotten diluted. Now, let's see real quickly, if you turn to page XX, how effective our program was 
between 1939, when the book was printed, and 1955, when the forward to the second edition was printed. Okay? Sixteen years have elapsed. Right? And it gives us, on page XX, some recovery statistics. It says, at the top of the page there, it's out of context, but you'll catch on here. It says, public acceptance of AA grew by leaps and bounds. Everybody with me? Okay. For this, there were two principal reasons. The large number of recoveries and reunited homes. These made their impressions everywhere. It goes on to say, everybody with me? Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried. Everybody circle that. Really tried. That's the caveat, right? That doesn't just mean that they came to a few AA meetings, and he's going to clarify that in the next couple sentences, okay? It means that they applied the AA recovery program, okay? It says of those who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainders, those who stood on with AA showed improvement. And that means they drank less, okay? They drank less, and I've worked with guys like that, okay? They never quite get it permanently. You know, they'll get two years, they'll drink. They'll get three years, they'll drink. They'll get a year, they drink, okay? But they drink less, okay? But here it says that between 1939 and 1955, we had a 75% rate of recovery of those who came into AA and really tried, okay? And let me tell you something, that is the best recovery rate in the world for the treatment of alcoholism. And that's why today, when you go to court for a DUI, or when you go to the doctor and you say, I have an alcohol problem, or when you have a family member who's trying to counsel you, you know what they do? They send you to AA. Because we got the best deal going, right? If church could get people sober, and don't get me wrong, I love my church, right? We'd all just go to church, right? If psychiatrists could get people sober, we'd all go to psychiatry. We'd sit in group therapy and we'd all get sober, right? I knew a, I have a, a pastor friend of mine who's now moved out of the area so I could talk about it. He was a, he was, he was a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I mean, I thought a pastor, like, he's tight with God. You know what I'm saying? Like him and God are homies. You know what I'm saying? But he'll be the first one to tell you that Jesus saved his soul, but he needed Alcoholics Anonymous to save his life. Right? And he could go back to the church and he could love God like he never had before because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? And thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? So, we know that in 1939, they had a 93% rate of recovery in Cleveland. We know that up until 1955, they had a 75% rate of recovery. Who wants to guess what our rate of recovery is today? And those of you who've been to this, be quiet. Yes, sir. Guess? 5%? 10%? 20%. You've heard 5%. You're all pretty close. Yes, sir, in the back. 3%. 2%. The latest statistics out of GSO, every five years GSO does a survey. You can call GSO and get the information. Okay, It's all public to AA members. Okay, And they can't survey every group like they used to be able to because AA has gotten too big. Okay, But they estimate now that our worldwide recovery rate is somewhere around 8%. 8%. Right? So we had a 75% recovery rate up until 1955, and today we have approximately an 8% recovery rate. What has happened? What has happened in Alcoholics Anonymous? I want to read you one more thing. We'll be done in five minutes, I promise. 
This is from this book. This is a great book, by the way, for those of you who are history buffs. This is called The Oxford Groups and Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a great historical book. Okay, It's written by a guy by the name of Dick B. Dick's written lots of books about the history of AA. And this is not an opinion book. This is a factual book about how the Oxford Groups and the principles of the Oxford Groups came into being in Alcoholics Anonymous. Very interesting reading. But he talks about in here, he talks about in here, our recovery rates. And he says in here, however phenomenal the 75 or 80% success rate in early AA was not to be the success rate of AA in later years and is certainly not the rate that exists today. Uh, it says, if you look at blah, 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 blah. It says, AA critics have reached similar conclusions. Some have estimated today's success rate at somewhere between 1.3 and 10.8%. One current state AA archivist observed, one survey question revealed that out of 100 newcomers, only four to six were able to maintain their newfound sobriety for a year. The vast majority slipped. This was not the case in AA's early years. It goes on to say, so before we look back at AA's early years, we present a major reason for our study of AA's spiritual origins. And this reason has been articulated over and over by AA's current archivist, Frank M., who quotes Carl Sandburg as follows. Whenever a civilization or society declines, there is always one condition present. They forgot where they came from. And you see, I wonder if we have forgotten where we came from in AA. I wonder if we have forgotten the principles that helped us found our society. And that's why there are many of us who believe that we need to put the book Alcoholics Anonymous back into the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and get back to what really created us. And I go to lots of meetings, right? I go to more meetings on accident than a lot of people go to on purpose, right? <laughs> I do, okay? And we talk about all sorts of stuff in AA, don't we, right? We talk about unity and we talk about the dance and we talk about this and we talk about that. And I'm here to tell you the most untapped resource in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is the book Alcoholics Anonymous, right? So I want to challenge everybody here, and I'll close on this note, to really try to lay aside your judgment for the next nine weeks. we got nine weeks left. You only have to put up with me for nine more weeks, right? And let's really commit ourselves to putting our judgment aside and really trying to find the truth about Alcoholics Anonymous, not only for ourselves, not only for ourselves. See, I started to do this for me, but now I do it so I can give the guys that I sponsor the best chance at this thing that they can have. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.